African universities need Asian studies programs like yesterday. It's it's almost an emergency, you know. Mm. Really, it's it's it's, it's incredibly important. You're listening to The Commute, your new favorite podcast, and I'm Jessica Van Anselen. I had to resist titling today's podcast, How's It My China?, a piece of slang only South Africans will understand. Why did I have to resist? Because adulting. But the topic of today is nevertheless China and South Africa. I was lucky enough to travel to China in 2011 and have never been able to stop thinking about its complexity and history and its rock-solid faith that it's one of the greatest countries in human civilization. Because our media reporting in South Africa tends towards the insular, or our domestic affairs just feel so overwhelming, whichever way you prefer to think about it, we don't often discuss China in South Africa, except maybe in the context of the BRICS partnership, an economic bloc made up of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. See, it spells BRICS. But there's actually been a hell of a lot going on with China recently. Last year, in 2017, China announced a $900 billion infrastructure investment initiative called One Belt, One Road. Let's just go over that slowly. Firstly, the figure of $900 billion. That is an almost incomprehensibly huge amount of money. It's like the figure Dudazan Izuma puts on his financial goals motivational vision board. It's just huge. Secondly, One Belt, One Road isn't exactly the most catchy title. Although in Chinese, it's Yidai Yilu, and that is significantly cooler to say, I do admit. So the Chinese initiative refers to building an economic belt, that's the belt, along the old Silk Road trading routes, that's the road, which used to connect Beijing to Europe. One Belt, One Road was announced by China's president, Xi Jinping, who also stands to benefit from China's recent decision, just a few weeks ago, to abolish term limits, giving him the potential to be president for life. What does that mean for us down here in South Africa, if anything? Since watching Donny J. Trump is like watching America do a belly flop in slow-mo into the Banana Republic swimming pool, people are increasingly wondering if Xi Jinping is going to save us all. Can he lead us on climate change, trade, security, loans, infrastructure, North Korea? Fortunately, in an excellent bit of foresight, South Africa has been sucking up to China for years, and also taking loans from China for years. To find out more, I got on the phone with Dr. Kurbis von Staden from the South African Institute of International Affairs. I came across Kurbis because I'm a huge fan of his podcast, which is called the China Africa Podcast. Please go and subscribe. It's just a really great show full of amazing insights and research on China and Africa. Kurbis completed his PhD in Japanese studies and media studies at the University of Nagoya in Japan in 2008. And his work focuses on China-Africa relations through the China Africa Project. Before we start the interview, I need to mention that the line was a little sticky in one or two places on the call. Sorry about that. It's not your dirty earphones, it's me. But hopefully you won't even notice. Right, let's go, my China. Kubis van Staden, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So 2018 marks the 20th anniversary of South Africa-China relations. Um, could you give us an overview of South Africa-China relations over the last couple of decades? I mean, that might cover, I imagine, trade or BRICS. We also know there's some ideological ties between the ANC and the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, what does the listener need to know? There's, there's a lot. It's a big relationship. Um, the uh, it's you know South Africa is is China's 
key partner in Africa. Um, so it's you know there is the relationship runs over a kind of a broad a broad range of issues. Um, so China is South Africa's largest trade partner. So, so it's a really important um, economic relationship for South Africa. Um, it is a, a major investor in South Africa, but it's not not by far the largest investor in South Africa. Like the largest investors are still Western investors. But but in terms of trade, China buys a lot of stuff from us, and we buy a lot of stuff from China. More more than we 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 import more than we export. And then also, it's a it's a growing and an increasingly important political relationship for for both sides, um, because uh, you know they 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 kind of are on the same page ideologically in some kind of ways, um, and for that reason, um, South Africa is a key partner in Africa for China, um, and they you know South Africa has been upgraded quite a quite several times in the, the partnership has been upgraded. To the extent that you know the, that South Africa is now a BRICS member, thanks to China, China like did the work of getting South Africa into that block. Um, they are they are kind of hosting summits together. Um, you know the, the, the BRICS summit, for example, is, is happening this year in South Africa. Um, and you know so so on on a, on a bunch of diplomatic levels, they are the, the relationship is getting stronger and stronger. Um, you know so so it is important, I think, to, to start unpacking the complexity of the relationship um, because it, I think it is one of China's most complex relationships in Africa. And why do you say complex? Is that because of the sophistication of the South African economy, of our political landscape, um, of China's ambitions? Yes, all of those. Our economy is more sophisticated and more complicated than lots of other African countries. So even though some of the patterns that China has with the rest of Africa are re repeated in South Africa, there's a whole bunch of, of exceptions in the South African case as well. So, for example, like, you know, in, 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 in many places, China's main involvement with African countries are in their in extraction, extraction and, and um, infrastructure provision. In the case of South Africa, there's a whole big, you know, kind of Chinese investment in banking, for example. You know, so, so the South African banking sector is, is important for Africa and China. Uh, it's important for China and Africa. I mean, you know, South Africa is also a lot more complicated in, in, in ways that other that other African countries are not. So, for example, South Africa's um, legal and uh, and labor landscapes are a lot more complicated and a lot more of a handful to China than, than other African countries. Like, we, for example, our unions are a lot more powerful, um, you know, which which complicates Chinese investment in South Africa. So, so in, in you know, in a, in a lot of ways, the complexity of South Africa also, com you know, makes the relationship more complex. Okay, so you mentioned, um, obviously, the extractive dimension of the trade relationship being critical, South Africa being mineral-rich, China needing to drive a lot of its growth with minerals, also infrastructure provision. But there is another aspect, which is that China is a significant issuer of loans um, into Africa, well, all over the world, but in this particular case, into Africa. And South Africa has actually taken significant loans from the Chinese. I was just looking into this a bit. I mean, in July 2017, um, our dear beleaguered ESCOM signed a 20.2 billion rand loan agreement with the China Development Bank. That's part of the Madupi power plant financing. And that was on top of an earlier 7.2 billion rand loan that they borrowed in December 2015. 
which is all well and good. But then I saw with horror that in December, Sri Lanka actually had to hand over one of its national ports to the Chinese because of their inability to service loans that they'd taken from the Chinese. And and Zambia now finds itself in a similar position, uh, overextended with loans to the Chinese. So, Corbis, is China a scary creditor? I mean, should South Africa be scared? Um, I think I think Africa as a whole should be concerned about this issue. The 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 case of Sri Lanka, you know, resonated right through Africa. I think I think it it raised a lot of of anxieties in Africa, and there's a lot of discussion in Africa at the moment about debt sustainability. Um, of course, Africa, you know, was significantly traumatized by by debt in the past. You know, when when runaway debt. Um, took over in the 70s and 80s. Um, the you know the 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 Bretton Woods institutions, the the International Monetary Fund, the, the World Trade Organization, imposed a set of structural adjustment programs, which which you know set African growth back decades and and, and led to widespread um, social disruption in Africa. So Africa is scared of debt for a good reason, and I think it should be cautious in in this case as well. Um, But at the same time, Africa is kind of in a bind, you know, because because it needs infrastructure, and without infrastructure, it's not going to develop. Um, And if you look at the case of Ethiopia, for example, the, the, the infrastructure that was Provided by Chinese loans is actually leading to to significant economic growth, and so so you you know and, and the Chinese themselves have said that you know well you know sorry but you know if 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 you are taking this infrastructure led and manufacturing led growth model that we got rich on then being super indebted for a while is part of the deal um, mm-hmm. you know which which you know kind of got something like muted like you know, harming and arming in Africa. Um, I think they kind of have a point. Um, that doesn't, you know, lessen the danger. I think I think the issues, the, the danger to African sovereignty is real. And I think it is important, you know, to keep a, to keep an eye on debt sustainability. But of course, I mean, China is not the only lender. I mean, you can get yourself in trouble with lots of different lenders. So, you know, so, so it's, it's a wider principle. At the same time, you also sit with, with first world economies like the U.S. being deeply indebted to China, you know, mm. so, so in, in certain ways, it's kind of, it's almost difficult to not be indebted to China. Um, in the case of South Africa, I think, I don't think South Africa is in such a kind of hectic position as a country like Zambia, also because South Africa has a, you know, has significant uh, like kind of checks and balances um, in, in, in relation to these issues. However, obviously, corruption in South Africa is a big issue. Um, and South Africa faces similar kind of pressures in terms of needing to upgrade infrastructure networks, um, needing that like connect, you know, like a, 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 a sustainable like dependable high-speed rail connection between Durban and Khartek, for example. I mean, there, there's just no way around that. You know, you, you just need it. If you, if you want to grow beyond a certain level, then you're going to have to spend that money. So, it, it, you know, there isn't that much room to, to maneuver if you also want to develop and grow. So something that's made a lot of headlines has been the recent changes to the Chinese constitution, the abolishment of term limits, that have made Xi Jinping arguably the most powerful man in the world right now. But we don't, as South Africa, we don't really talk about Xi's leadership a lot. Um, he isn't really front and center of our newspapers, perhaps the way he is in, in Europe and the States. Could you tell us a little bit more about him? He seems much more assertive than his predecessors. Who is Xi and what can we expect under him? 
Well, you know, he he is a little bit of an enigma, as as is a lot of of, of internal Chinese Communist Party dynamics. But um, from what we know, she is really really grew up within the party. Like his his parents were were very significant party um, functionaries, um, and he was one of the the group of of party elite children who you know, kind of who, who was kind of very early on in, trained in party ideology very deeply. Um, and, in, you know, there's a, there's all of these kind of famous pictures of him you know, having been sent to, you know, in the 70s, sent, sent out to the rural areas um, to live there with farmers, which was a big thing during the Cultural Revolution, where, where the, the city, city elite, and especially to the city elite's children, um, were kind of like packed off to extremely rural areas to, quote, learn from the peasantry. And he, he did that. Um, so he is, you know, he, he is someone who really came up through the party. And one of the things that, that has been very clear in, in, in this changeover is that he really is, I mean, that the party is front and central in Chinese politics for, you know, since the revolution. But he really, really is reinforcing party party power. Um, he's making the party a lot more powerful. Um, so that is, you know, that, that is interesting. Um, he's also, he also has a lot um, kind of, uh, he's, he's a lot more controlling, I think, or a lot more assertively controlling of, you know, of a whole bunch of, of party mechanisms. Um, so, for example, he's cracked down on, on corruption. A lot of people have, have characterized that as also a way of shoring up political um, is his political support and eliminating enemies, um, and but you know but he, he did put the party on, on this kind of direction of of being completely central to the society in China, everything running via the party. There's no clear distinction between the party and the state, um, and and because he, he the term limits have been abolished, that vision. Um, is, is going to be dominant for a while. So it, it really is a good idea for Africa to get to know Xi a lot better and also for just to get to know the Chinese party, um, communist system and political system a lot better. Like African universities need Asian studies programs like yesterday. It's, it's almost an emergency, you know, mm. really. It's, 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 it's incredibly important. Um, and, you know, so, so it, it, but, in terms of of how she is gonna is gonna go from here, that is obviously is the billion dollar question that that everyone is is you know trying to to, to think about. But it, it's very difficult to actually get real answers because the system in China is frequently so opaque. Uh, and there was a sort of a moment of hope, I think, when Donald Trump was elected and then Brexit was passed in the UK, that she might start to provide the leadership, certainly on big issues like. Um, globalism and climate change, he might step into the breach, which might have been left there by, by Europe and um, United States at sort of stepping back. But then there was the abolition of term limits. And, and I'm wondering, are there indications that this person might have uh, authoritarian tendencies? I mean, clearly the Chinese Communist Party um, is in very many ways textbook authoritarian, but might he take a harder line on power than, than some of his immediate predecessors? Well, he does seem to really be taking, you know, a harder line. There's, you know, it's, there's a lot of a lot of um, of crackdowns in in China um, around a lot of different issues. So, you know, I think I think um, Chinese authorities themselves would probably would probably acknowledge that, um, you know, and 
So, I mean, within China, a lot of it is, is couched in terms of, of making the system more efficient and also making it less corrupt. Mm-hmm. And I mean, China has, has had significant corruption problems over the last few decades. So it's not like the corruption issue isn't, you know, it's just a red herring. But yeah, I mean, he's, he has a, he has considerably like firmer grip on the controls, I think, than, than previous leaders. That for me doesn't necessarily you know, um, eliminate the idea that China might might take on a global leadership role. I think both of those could happen at the same time, um, because because the the US is so divided on 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 key issues. Climate change being being a really good example. Um, China does, I think, has I've seen numbers that China has the highest investment in in renewable energy in the world, um, and China has a, a very strong domestic. Um, pressure to clean up the environment. It's one of the biggest, you know, kind of hot button issues in China. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's this kind of perfect situation where China is, Chinese leaders are, f- are facing domestic pressure and uh, an opportunity to lead internationally, you know. So I think there is a chance there that China could actually move towards, you know, take, playing a bigger role in climate change playing a bigger role in, um, in multilateralism generally because the U.S. is so divided um, and kind of befuddled around these issues at the moment. In this sense, South Africa might be well positioned because, in fact, they have been cultivating a, a strong relationship with China for decades, um, perhaps more so than some of their peer countries. So in 2017, she announced really the sort of jewel in the in the crown. He, he announced this signature initiative of his his time in power so far, which was called the One Belt One Road Initiative. I had a little look at it, sort of researching for this podcast. I couldn't really see Africa or South Africa in it, but could for our listeners, could you just explain when they hear about One Belt One Road, what is it and what does it involve? It's a very big um, infrastructure rollout um, that is designed to to it, it's difficult to discuss it without sounding grandiose, but but it essentially is designed uh, to use infrastructure to connect China mostly to Western Europe um, through kind of massive infrastructure rollouts, um, and so the, the kind of bigger idea of it would be that it's it's a form of kind of remaking the old silk road system which obviously was an international trade route that had beijing at the center so so the idea is that there's there, okay, there's two routes um one is called the silk road economic belt um which which runs overland through central asia through through parts of the middle east um to europe to germany and then um uh, you know, through interlinked train lines. It's essentially long train lines. Um, but there, there's a lot of other, other infrastructure there too, a lot of data networks and um, oil pipelines and so on. It's also built, built along that route. The second one is essentially a series of ports, um, which is called the, twin, the 21st Century Maritime Silk Road. Um, and that is, it, it runs through um, Southeast Asia, through, through the, the sea. Um, you know, it's a series of, of, of sea ports and, and shipping lanes um, um, running through Southeast Asia, past South Asia, um, and then to Mombasa. Um, and um, so it touches Africa in, in Kenya. There's also another um, rail line connecting Ethiopia to Djibouti. Uh, and Djibouti is also the, the location of China's first overseas military, overseas military base. So it's a big port and also a military 
be based. So, so those are those are these kind of connections on the East African coast that then facilitate shipping, keep also for keeping shipping safe from piracy, for example, um, through the you know through the Suez Canal and to to the Mediterranean. So, so it, it has the potential of connecting large parts of the interior of East Africa um, and even Central Africa if the rail lines extended that far to this you know kind of halfway around the world kind of massive trading route. The concentration on East Africa and and building or rebuilding those sort of sophisticated infrastructure links into Western Europe and Asia, that by necessity omits South Africa. Um, Do you think that's a lost opportunity for South Africa or do you think there's enough other trade relations and um, cooperative arrangements to compensate for exclusion from one belt, one road? I don't think that South Africa is actually 100% excluded from it. Like... um, there's recently a, a big new undersea internet cable that was that was laid um, between Kenya and Pakistan, and in Pakistan it connected um, to to cables that you know that that connect to, to China. So it's it's a, it's, a, it's it's done by Chinese companies, and it's a it's a you know it's a Chinese kind of internet provision. Um, initiative, and so it, it connected to to, Niger, to, um, to Kenya. I mean, and um, but at the same time, it was the next phase. Phase two of that project was going to also was going to connect it to Egypt on the one side, and then to South Africa on the other side. Um, so I think there is the potential for for South Africa to to kind of to get some profit out of this, you know, kind of by by focusing on corridors that run up the, the eastern seaboard of, of, of the African continent. So South Africa would need to, to integrate in creative ways with Mozambique, which would then connect it to Tanzania, and Tanzania mm-hmm. is already building a bunch of um, Belt and Road related infrastructure. There's big new ports happening in, in, in Tanzania. So it's not necess- um, necessary that it's only the countries that are on the full Belt and Road route. You already see that one of the countries that is making the most out of all of this development is actually Ethiopia, uh, which is A, not even actually on the route and B, not even on the sea. Um, you know, it, it, it is connected to a port via, via a Chinese port rail line to Djibouti. Um, and, and Ethiopia has, has made a lot of investments in special economic zones and is using, you know, some of these, these kind of connections that are being set up to Europe to also export to Europe. Um, and a lot of that is happening with Chinese, Chinese money. Um, so if South Africa is proactive about it and, and if South Africa is, is, you know, kind of has a more integrated vision with the rest of East Africa, which is, you know, extremely necessary anyway. Then there is there is the potential to to gain some kind of traction from the road. Perhaps uh, almost returning to Mbeki's interest in the African contra- continent, to his sort of internationalism. Perhaps the Ramaphosa presidency, um, if they have a more engaged foreign policy, there are some benefits for South Africa to reap from these sort of developments. Yes, yes. I think you know the. I mean, we the the continental free trade zone. You know, is is happening as we speak, um, and so there's a lot of opportunities there. I think the entire continent is, is you know is, is kind of headed in that more integrative cross frontier kind of direction. Um, so you know, I think the vision was coined by by Mbeki and some of his work, but to a certain extent. You know, it is now, I think, much more of a, of a mainstream agenda in Africa. Um, and you know, I don't think South Africa is necessarily even really leading it at the moment. You know, it's just, it, but it would be good if it, if it became a full partner in it. So 
That's a fantastic overview. Thank you so much. Um, you, you actually run your own podcast um, with a colleague of yours uh, called the China Africa Podcast, which is how I came across you. I'm a huge fan. I think it's one of the most interesting and insightful podcasts, which addresses a real gap in our knowledge, which is what is going on between China and Africa, underreported, underdiscussed uh, area of the news. Tell us a little bit about the China Africa Podcast and, and where listeners can find it. Thank you so much. It's so kind. Um, it is. Uh, it's called the China and Africa podcast. It is on iTunes and um, all over the web. Um, we we do. Um, you know, we do, we do a lot of different kind of um, cross-platform work. So um, we run a, a news aggregator on social media. We um, our podcast, you know, has, has several partnerships. So we um, we cross we cross post to to a bunch of different outlets, um, and we try and and. To, cast the web as wide as possible you know so so china africa is a, is a niche kind of topic um and it's you know so, so in, in certain ways it's, it is a narrow topic but then within it there is all of these these kind of universes that you can explore um so we try and cast it as wide as possible and to try and get the, the conversation to go as wide as possible so we have some people who are some of our guests um are extremely critical of china some of our guests are extremely critical of africa um, some of them are, you know, look at to look at the relationship from the perspective of the West. Some are extremely critical of the West. It, you know, it, it goes in that direction. So we tend to speak a lot with um, with journalists and with academics because they focus so much on this work. But we also speak with a lot of people from NGOs, a lot of business people, a lot of students. We try and, and cast the net to, to include as many young people as possible. So we have, for example, even an interviewed a, a, a Chinese high school student who was busy with the project in, in East Africa. Um, and, you know, so, so we, we, we try and show the, the full complexity of, of the topic. One of the things um, I've really enjoyed about your podcast, being South African, our um, national monomania around race, there have been some really interesting conversations on the China and Africa podcast around Chinese racism. Um, I won't get into it here, but I'd really like to say to listeners, if you are interested in exploring some of you know that really complex kind of issue of Chinese racism and how the Chinese are perhaps trying to confront that, the internal domestic conversations, um, go and listen to Kobus's podcast on, on China and race. I mean, that's a fascinating topic, right, Kobus? Yes, and, and it's, it's a very complex one. Um, we have in the past, um, you, you know, there, there's been over the last the last few months, there's been several race-related gaffes in China, you know, several kind of like media missteps that, that, we, that we pounced on with glee um but at the same time um you know the the race 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 in china is a very complicated situation and you know so, so we have in the past done episodes with um with black people living in china for example where they where they discuss their experiences of racism there versus the experiences of racism in places like the uk or the us for example um you know and, and unpacking how both those experiences of racism are experiences of racism, but also they are, you know, very different experiences of racism in lots of complicated ways. We also in the past have dealt with African racism against Chinese, um, which is a big issue, and I think it's an unexplored issue. Um, and it's actually, you know, something in South Africa is actually, and in Africa as a whole, you know, like that that is something that, that people are actually not as, as accustomed to unpacking. Um, you know, and, and lots of my, lots of friends and acquaintances, um, of Asian descent, East Asian descent, and also South Asian descent in, in, who live in Africa, make it very clear that, that, you know, kind of racism 
like anti-Asian racism in Africa is very real. Um, so we, we try and cover as much of that as possible while also trying to acknowledge our own positions, you know, so, so we can never take on a position of being this like kind of voice of God comment, commentator on the situation. Um, you know, we, also, we always have to make clear like where we come from, what our own experiences are, like what the role that white privilege plays in our lives. Um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so, so it's, it's, it's always a, a kind of a complicated situation um, that we try, we try and kind of, you know, make as complicated as possible. It's just creating, I think, that platform for that conversation uh, about these very tricky and under-discussed sort of topics. So listeners, I really would encourage finding the podcast. Um, there's some really interesting stuff there to explore. And then, Quibbers, just to end off with, I always ask my guests, so um, we have listeners who are in South Africa, but also in the expat community around the world. Um, they've listened to this podcast. They want to know a little bit more about South Africa-Chinese relations. Um, what would you recommend that they go? What resources would you recommend that they go and look for? Two resources, actually. Uh, one is, um, and this is a bit of log rolling for my own, my own place of work, uh, the, the South African Institute for International Affairs, um, which is where, where I'm an analyst. Um, they have their... their um, their website um, has a fantastic set of tools, and that is at sia.org.za. That's S-A-I-I-A.org.za. And they have um, a whole bunch of tools related to China-Africa specifically, and then China's, China-South Africa relations. There's a lot of it there. They're, 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 they are a very venerable think tank, and they've... Um, they were some of the earliest people who were focusing on China-Africa relations actually in the world. Um, and then also the, the work and the, the accumulated archive of the, the um, Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University. Um, and I think, I think it is at ccs.org.za, I think. I'm not absolutely 100% sure. Probably Google, should probably Google that. Um, they have, were also extremely early kind of adopters of the issue and they they have a, a massive kind of archive of, of work going back really a long time like covering a lot of different china african issues but also deeply diving into china south african issues okay fantastic um i will put those links into the show notes listeners so that you're able to access them Quibus, thank you so much it was absolutely fascinating and um we might have to have you back in a couple of months and and have a catch-up on what's happened in china south africa relations thank you so much absolutely thank you so much i love it thank you Check out www.thecommute.co.za for more episodes or email me on thecommutesa at gmail.com if you have any comments or any ideas for series two of the podcast or if you want me to interview you. Just kidding.